0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Hey, I miss my dad. Dad was not perfect, but he was a good man. Uh, My dad carried the weight of responsibility from the time he was a child. Through his adult life and sickness throughout his latter years, lesser men would have cracked. Lesser men would have turned to complaining. Lesser men would have turned to self-medicating behaviors. But my dad, Jim Roden, was spiritual, he was stable, he was wise, and he was generous. It's been over 10 years now that I said goodbye to my father in this world Yet to this day, I still meet people who loved my dad and whose lives were profoundly impacted by him. He was a pillar in his church. He was a pillar in his community, in the business world, and also in his family. And he had a significant impact on his tribe. His family of origin and his nuclear family and all of the generations beyond now, 25 years grandkids and almost that many great grandkids now he was a man who finished well on his headstone on his grave i got to actually pick this my sister ruth uh wholeheartedly concurring james 1 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which the which god has promised to those who love him and we No, dad was not perfect. He did not walk on water. But he was a man of God, a man of influence, a man of impact. A man who finished well and a man who left a great legacy. I believe that a good legacy is something that we should desire. However, we cannot get there from here. A good legacy, in order to have one, cannot be something that you actually focus on. There's way too much self Wrapped up into having or desiring or working for a good legacy. But good legacy is the byproduct. It flows from the principled and godly living of men and women who don't care about it. You follow that? A good legacy flows from the principled and godly living of men and women who don't care about it. They are focusing on the Lord and what he would have them to do. And this is the man, Joshua. Yeah, we've been in the book of Joshua for quite some time. And it's more than a biography. But it contains a biography nonetheless. A biography of a man who finished well and left a great legacy. And believe it or not, we are wrapping up our study in Joshua this morning pastor Tyler and I several months ago uh, were trying to fit the Joshua series into 10 weeks and uh, 17 weeks would have been far more appropriate but here we are at 13 weeks and at the end of the book of Joshua in chapter 24 but because there's so many more important things uh, that we want to get to this year This has to be the final for our season. Now, uh, chapters 23 and 24 really go together. In fact, they contain what I I see as a double farewell address given to two groups of individuals. The first one to the leadership of the nation. That's chapter 23. And and we'll reach back there for a few signals of uh, when and what Joshua is attempting to do. this morning we're going to focus on the second and final admonition of Joshua to all of the people of Israel. It's now 10 to 20 years after the initial seven-year conquest of the land. So if we add it all up, we are now 17 to 27 years later from the beginning of the book of Joshua. We learn this in part from the beginning of chapter 23. Here's an example. Joshua 23, one, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well-advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and a few officers, and said to them, I am now old and well-advanced in years. So that's his unwrapping of his first farewell address that's focused specifically on the leadership well, we get this idea from this verse in what we're going into that Joshua's old. He knows that his time on earth is almost over. Somewhere around 110 years old. And despite the, the idea that the season of conquest and settlement of the land of Canaan was one of the brightest chapters in all of Israel's history, Joshua by this time can see The storm clouds rising in the hearts of his people. By chapter 15 of Joshua, we begin to get some hints of the beginnings of compromise, complaining, and complacency. I'll give you a quick survey. And we actually discover in Judges that at least five tribes failed to to push out the people that God told them to push out and destroy. And they failed to do so, but but we see it actually begin, beginning to unfold in Joshua. For instance, Joshua 15, right after what we studied last week in chapter 14 of Caleb saying, give me the hill country, let's do this. Other tribes were not so committed. It says in, in Joshua 15, 63, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. That was compromise. That would cause them great problems later on. And then in chapter 16, this time it's not Judah, but Ephraim. They did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, um, but have been made to do forced labor. So they had a decision, push them out or enslave them, and use them for economic gain so they're going to get rich off of slave labor instead of doing what god told them to and without compromise push them out we jump forward to chapter 17 of joshua now when the people of israel grew strong they put the canaanites to forced labor but did not utterly drive them out so this is now spreading like a virus let's not push them out let's enslave them and then uh, couple verses later, Joshua 17, verse 16, it says the people of Joseph start to complain. They say, the hill country that you gave us is too small for us. And the Canaanites that live there have chariots of iron. It's not big enough, and the people there are really scary. Diametric opposite, 180 degrees different from Caleb that we studied last year, or last week, sorry. Well, that's a time warp, right? Um, So they're complaining. They say, we can't do it. It's too hard and it's too small. And then finally in Joshua 18, there's seven tribes that are still camping out, living a, a nomadic lifestyle years after they're called to inherit the land. And Joshua says to them, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? So here at the end of Joshua's life, Joshua is not um, concerned about himself or his legacy. His greatest concern is his people and their relationship to the Lord. He knows he's old. His time on earth is short. So he gathers all the people one last time to do anything and everything he can possibly do. To challenge and encourage them to serve the Lord, Yahweh God, wholeheartedly. For it is in this serving of the Lord that we discover flourishing. Here's what it says in Joshua 24. Verse 1 Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Now, why Shechem? Shechem shows up again and again in the Old Testament and even in the New. It's central. It's central in the land of Canaan, smack dab in the middle. It's been the site of many dedication moments. Abraham, when he came into Shechem uh, centuries earlier, built an altar. His son, grandson Jacob, when Jacob came to Shechem, it's where he called for the casting off and burying of their family idols, and he likewise built an altar there. It's also the site several chapters earlier, several years prior. After conquering the city of Ai, Joshua took them up to this area. Shechem is smack dab in between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. That is where the nation first rededicated themselves to the covenant of their God. So Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and it says he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. So all the tribes are there, all the leaders are there, and they presented themselves before God, and Joshua said to them, Thus says the Lord, so now he is playing prophet, just like Moses, that God is now speaking in first person through the man Joshua, and this is what God says, Thus says the Lord, The God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham was from a tribe of idolaters. He was not a good man, a noble man, a perfect man. He was an idolater from a family of idolaters. And this is what God is saying. In verse 3, it says, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam the son of Beor to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or bow. I gave you the land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. The Lord. This is unfortunate. Uh, Microsoft Word, when I cut and paste from BibleGateway.com. Anytime in in your written text you see the Lord, and it's all in caps, but the, the caps have been made a little bit smaller. That's an English translation trying to capture the sacred name of God, Yahweh. So if you were to open up your your Hebrew uh, software, and look at the word, it's always the tetragrammaton, the ineffable name for God, Yahweh. And the translators, and for, for caution, and don't want to take his name in vain, but hello, it's in the scripture, so I don't get it. But you'll see it's the Lord in all caps, but, but the, the uh, O-R-D is, is kind of a lowercase all caps. My software doesn't understand it and throws it all into lower, lowercase. So it's unfortunate I didn't catch it on these, on these slides. I wish the translator would just say Yahweh. Because you're not taking the Lord's name in vain when you're putting it in Scripture. And that's what the Hebrew says. Just a note. So you're going to see it's in, in lower caps. And, and there is a lower cap, Lord, it just means master, used for God. But this is the upper caps all throughout jo- Joshua chapter 24. In the, so that's just a really important note. Because God is, it is his personal Covenantal name, God, the self existent one. And, and the idea here in these first 13 verses is that the Lord, Yahweh God, has been gracious and faithful to Israel. 21 times, God refers to himself as the initiator and the hero of their redemption. 18 times with the personal pronoun I. In that little speech of re- rehearsing the entire story from start to fish, finish from Abraham up until their present day. That God is say, taking personal responsibility and say, have I not been faithful to you? And Joshua wanting him to see, remember, look at what God's done. And he would say to us as well, look at your life. It's been hard. Yes, it's been filled with challenges. But look, you're breathing. You're here. You've got more challenges ahead. It's scary, it's terrifying, but has God not been faithful? He is the initiator and the hero of our redemption. So based on God's faithfulness, Joshua issues this challenge. Verse 14 and 15, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And then the idea is and if you choose not to do that, you still got to make a decision. Look at verse 15. And if it's evil in the eyes to serve the Lord, Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... Joshua, recognizing that, that his influence and his legacy, that he could only truly take responsibility for himself and the influence that he has in his people, he says, "Ask for me and my house, the choice is certain. It's already been made. We will serve the Lord. God has been faithful. We've had faithful leaders go before us and say, "All out for Christ. no compromise." But each one of us, in the words of Bob Dylan, we must choose. You're going to have to serve somebody. No matter how faithful God has been, no matter how many times you've chosen, we have an ongoing decision. Who are we going to serve? The word serve in the Hebrew, al-bad, means slave, vassal. Or worshiper. Great word. This word appears seven times in verses 14 and 15. And 16 times in Joshua chapter 24. In the words of of Bible scholar Dale Ralph Davis. He says, there is no doubt what Joshua is after. Israel must decide whose slaves they will be. We are all slaves to something or someone. Who is your master? Who are you going to serve? And if you're not going to choose the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh God, you still have to decide. Back to the words of Ralph Davis, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, um, and this one's not up on the screen, but listen. Uh, he says, Joshua appears to do a strange thing. Not everyone notices that, that his famous choose you this day command calls Israel to, to choose between Two sets of pagan gods. Joshua had called, already called, Israel to serve Yahweh. Verse 14. But if Israel will not serve Yahweh, they must at le- least choose some gods. They must, he, he presses Israel to the wall. They must come down somewhere, if not Yahweh, the real historical god. They must choose either the ancestral Mesopotamian gods or the contemporary Amorite gods. And then he adds this really fascinating insight. Listen to this. The conservatives who were fond of tradition, of what had stood the test of time, who yearned for the faith of our fathers, might vote for Mesopotamia. The liberals with their yen for relevance, for being in step with the times, might prefer to identify as an act of goodwill with the cultural current Milu and enter into dialogue and worship with the Amorites. But you must choose. If not Yahweh, then take your pick, and in the words of Matthew Henry, take your pick from these dunghill deities. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua says, I've made up my mind. I'm taking the first choice. I will serve the Lord and my house We have the choice. Old gods, new gods, or like Joshua and his tribe, the true God. Follow? We belong to a different yet similar covenant, men and women. A covenant that also demands a choice whom we will serve. But here's a question. If the covenant was made at Sinai... And the covenant, some would argue that Joshua chapter 5, the circumcision and celebration of the Passover, was another kind of renewal. But then in chapter 8, they're in the same area as Shechem. And that's the official covenant renewal. Haven't they already made the covenant? Haven't they already renewed the covenant? Why are they doing it again? Haven't they done that already? And the answer is absolutely, absolutely, But because of their and our whimsical, flaky, forgetful nature, there must be regular covenant renewals. Okay, this is our bottom line for our message this morning. You can fill in the blank. We must choose and continue to choose whom we will serve. It's not merely a one and done. There are parts of it that are finished. But we must continue to choose every moment, every day, whom we will serve. Cavate Robert is the one who actually first said this. Character is the ability to carry out a good resolution long after the excitement of the moment has passed. You follow that? Character, integrity. It's the ability to carry out a good resolution long after the excitement or enthusiasm of the moment has passed. In a covenant renewal, a rededication can help and should help and is actually essential to our journey of faith. An example of this is a marriage vow renewal. Sometimes it's couples that go through a rocky season um, sometimes it's just getting to a, a magical um, anniversary and they go, man, I love you more than I've ever loved you. I, I couldn't imagine how well this has turned out. Or just grit, like, you know what, double down, I'm committed. A pledge of allegiance to a flag is an example. To daily be reminded, I'm, I belong to the United States of America. Uh, perhaps the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. All of these are examples of reminding ourselves a commitment, a dedication, uh, an identity, if you will, that is a kind of renewal or rededication. And why? Because good, important, worthy decisions can begin to to fade and be forgotten. The heart can cool. The will can weaken. The mind begin to forget. Important commitments must be renewed. We must choose and continue to choose whom we will serve. Let me ask you, When was your last spiritual rededication? When was your last covenant renewal? Can I tell you a beautiful thing that the Lord Jesus gave to us to do? Um, Two ordinances in the New Testament church, baptism and communion. And how do these correspond? Well, baptism is the sign of the new covenant. The identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ a one-and-done experience where we say, I am wed to the Lord. And then we get this opportunity to share in the Lord's table or communion as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. The idea that it would be several times, it would be the renewal of the covenant. So at the very least, there would be an ongoing church-based renewal of the covenant. Every time we take communion together together. May it be that we are rededicating ourselves corporately, congregationally to the Lord and His mission in this world. But how much better individually each morning, each moment. How about right now in this split second, God, I am all yours. I am all in. And renew that and step into a moment of a rededication. When was the last time of your last spiritual rededication or covenant renewal? Well, here's the question, why should I? You might be asking, that sounds awfully uh, spiritual and uh, deep and maybe religious. And what if this life is all we get? And the beauty of a Sunday morning running up in the hills. Well, what, if, what if all these religious people are off base? What if I miss out on happiness? What if I, I'm called by the Lord or the scriptures To make a very difficult sacrificial decision. But it turns out to be a flop. Why should I choose Yahweh? It's answered in the text. And to just drop it in on you, the first fill in the blank. Only the Lord is trustworthy and faithful. Only the Lord. That's why 21 times God refers to himself... 18 times in first person, I, God wants us to remember, I've been faithful, I've been faithful in the creation of the cosmos and the universe, the fine-tuned details of how the universe works from, from astrophysics to quantum physics, he's been faithful, the story of redemption is recorded in the scriptures, but then in our own personal lives, has he not been faithful, and guess what? The people of Israel listening to Joshua speak for God or God through Joshua. They catch it. They hear it. And they embrace it. This is what it says in verse 16. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then they recite what God said about himself. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers out from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And who did not, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us In the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed, and the Lord drove out people before us, all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for He is our God. And by the way, these statements of God's faithfulness are all over—not only the Bible, but all over the Book of Joshua. We we just happen to skip over some of them, but let me just grab one. From chapter 23, listen to the God, this statement of God's faithfulness. Uh, Joshua says in verse 14 of, of chapter 23, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. That means I'm going to die. And you know in your hearts and your souls that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Amen. Amen. His word is true, his promises are sure, he is faithful, he is reliable, he is trustworthy, and that is who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. It's in Revelation 19.11, uh, John has this vision of the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he says this, then I saw the heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called, it's his name, this is his character, he is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Our God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, is faithful and true. Yes, we may need to wait many years. They might be difficult and painful years. They might be years in the desert. As it was for Joshua and Caleb, they waited 45 years to inherit their portion of the land. There might be patience, there will be cross-bearing. However, every word is true. Jesus is faithful and true. So here's the question is, why would you choose anything or anyone else than full surrender to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, What would full surrender look like? We find this in verses 19 through 23. Jump back into the text with me. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. We're going to come back to that. For he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, your witness is against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, here's what it's going to mean. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the second time in Joshua 24. And either one of two things is happening. Either, Either one, Joshua knows with three to five million Jews, maybe even more by that time, That they secretly, some of the tribes, some of the families, some of the individuals actually have some old school gods of Abraham, Terah, Haran going way back. And they're secretly doing some of these things. Or he merely knows the idolatrous nature of human beings, including the Jews. But he calls them to put them away. Put away your idols. The word put away in the Hebrew means to turn off. Figuratively or literally, turn it off. And uh, Pastor Tyler pointed this out to me a couple weeks ago. Our English word decision, based on the root word scission. Okay, so so the idea, um, incision means to cut into. Excision means to cut out. Decision means to cut off. Same idea in the Hebrew, put away or, or turn it off. When I decided to marry Stacy Longnecker, I cut off all other options. Um, when I deser- decide, when we decide to serve the Lord our God, we must cut off all other rival gods. And here's the, the fill in the blank, a sincere choice that he argues for. A sincere choice means cutting off all alternatives. And what he's arguing for is we must deal decisively and brutally with rival gods in our life. This will be an ongoing challenge for us for the rest of our lives. Because any good thing can become an idol. Any good thing. Marriage, family, even Christians in the church I call it marital idolatry, familial idolatry. There's hymno idolatry. People go, no, it's the great hymns of faith. I don't like those songs up there. And and anything, good songs, a hymn book in some churches. No, we can't get rid of those. It becomes idolatry. A, A teaching, a church service, a sermon. This could be idolatry for me. I'm looking to you. For affirmation, I'm building my legacy, something that feeds my soul. Or for you, hmm, I liked it. Hmm, that was engaging. Hmm, I enjoyed that. Rather than, was I challenged? Did it honor Christ? Was it true? Any good thing in this world can become an idol and supersede God. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit God, says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything... That absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that you, should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Then in another place in the same book, he says, idols give us a sense of being in control. And we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. Follow this. What do we fear most? What if we lost it would make life not worth living? So, what terrifies you? Could you say, that's an idol? Jesus is more. Jesus is better. Jesus is bigger. And then finally, anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. See, false gods promise in immediate gratification. Immediate peace, immediate honor. They're a shortcut trying to get to pleasure. But anything promised by an idol is not only a mirage. It dissipates like vapor. But it also comes with a heavy price tag of guilt, shame, addiction, and pain. It is a classic bait and switch scenario. Thursday night I went for, to Friends for Life. Showed up there and Rusty Fox is one of our young men in the church and a great teacher. He had just done a talk for our friends group um, based on the the fig tree that Jesus curses and the symbolism of uh, beautiful on the outside, empty on the inside. And he had this illustration, um, a bag of Chips Ahoy cookies. But if you lift the lid inside, instead of Chips Ahoy cookies, it was filled with rocks. And this is beautiful, age appropriate, exactly where he should be out. out. Uh, Little John um, I'll keep the last name, but Little John, he's, he's almost two, I think. Yeah, almost two? One and a half? Man, he was mesmerized by that bag. He could not stay away from that bag. Little John would walk up to the bag and lift the corner and see it's filled with rocks. He looked dumbfounded and he would put it down and walk away. But then he would look back and double take and go, no. He'd go back to it. And at least three times I watched Little John Go looking for cookies. A bag that looked good, it overpromised, but it underdelivered. These are our idols. Keep going back in again and again to dead rocks. But the dead rock pleasures of our idols simply cannot satisfy. So let us cast off our idols. I'm not saying to get rid of your marriage. I'm saying put it in a proper order under the lordship of Christ. Don't put off health and fitness. Just put it in its proper order. Not only uh, the lordship of Christ, but but probably beneath your marriage and beneath your spiritual walk with Jesus. Okay, just put it in the right place, and that's what casting off, cutting off these, these good things are. And then certainly there are some very terrible idols that demand absolute, absolute decision. Well, as enthusiastic as the people of Israel were, and they say, we're all in. Oh, sign us up. These interesting words in verse 19, Joshua says, you are not able to serve the Lord. Then he goes on to say, he's a jealous God. He's a holy God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. So what's going on here? Well, I believe that Joshua knew his people because he understood his own heart. He calls them out because he knew That they could not possibly live up to God's standard of perfection. And that is God's standard. Perfection. Perfection is impossible. What about the idea that God would not forgive their sins? Don't we know him to be a sin-forgiving God? Well, look back in this context. Two different things we can see. One, in this context, it's the apostasy of saying, God, I serve you and you alone. And then I turn to false gods purposefully. They turn away from the Lord, and this will not be overlooked. You see, some of God's covenantal promises are unconditional based on God's character and character alone. Some are conditional and dependent upon obedience for their fulfillment. Look at it this way. Israel entered into and conquered the land of Canaan based on God's unconditional promise that he gave to their forefathers. It's not because they were so awesome. But he had made a a unilateral promise. However, their enjoyment of the land would depend on their ongoing allegiance and obedience to the Lord. Any turning to false gods, willful breaking of their commitment would undermine God's blessing to them, and idolatry would cause the land to spew them out. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way God will not allow his children, they are his children. But God will not allow his children to sin successfully. He simply loves us too much to bless us in idolatry. And so discipline will come. Joshua, sensing their enthusiasm, knowing human, human nature, calls them out and throws the gauntlet. You can't do it. Not perfectly. Some humility is called for. There will be a pro- profound need for divine assistance. There will need, there's a need for mercy and grace. In men and women, I'm here to tell you we have a different yet similar covenant. Some parts unconditional, such as the forgiveness of sins as a free gift earned by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. In other parts, conditional based on our obedience. You follow? Human flourishing, following Jesus in flourishing, is costly, for it requires cross-bearing. Disobedience will get us discipline. Christ is gracious. His discipline is designed to bring us back to repentance. He is faithful to us in the new covenant, even in our wanderings. But don't think it won't hurt. What I want to park in here this morning is, at the end here, is he remains faithful even when we're not. Amazing example is Peter mouthing off in John 13 when he says, I will die for you. And Jesus says, will you, Peter? Actually, you won't. You're going to deny me three times. And then immediately in John chapter 14, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. In my father's house are many mansions. I might have switched that around, but, but, but I go there. And, and if I go, I will return again and, and bring you unto myself that where I am, there you might be also. And the idea is Peter, you're going to blow it enormously, but I'm going to be faithful. Let not your heart be troubled. He remains faithful even when we're not. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13, I believe, explains this perfectly. I don't have time to really unpack this well. But Paul is reciting an ancient creed, a hymn, that has both the unconditional and the condition conditional. It's, a, it's what's called a chiasm. It's a sandwich. The unconditional commitment of God is the two pieces of bread. The conditional requirements is the sandwich meat in between. This is a trustworthy saying, this saying is trustworthy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him, that's unconditional, it's the picture of baptism, my life has been given to me by God, eternal life, through faith in Christ. But here's the condition, if we endure with him, he will also reign with him, if we deny him, he will also deny us, and then finally unconditional again, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. God is faithful men and women, we have a good God. But every moment of every day, we are called to renew that decision, that choice. Whom shall you serve? In the end, I can't guarantee that anyone else except me in what I'm going to do. So here this morning, how about a dedication? How about a dedication? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you say it with me? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.